Good morning, friends. Good morning to those who are here and those who are near. Uh, welcome back to uh, seminary chapel service. Uh, let's set down the work and the worries of this morning with a deep breath in together and a deep breath out. I invite you to join me in our call to worship. You'll find it on the, uh, on the screens around you. Hear, O Israel, the Lord is our God, the Lord alone. You shall love the Lord with God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. Keep these words that I am commanding you today in your heart. Recite them to your children and talk about them when you are at home and when you are away, when you lie down and when you rise. Our first hymn, uh, pay attention to the words on the screen. Don't look at the hymnals. We're going to use a, um, a different tune than the one that's presented, uh, a familiar tune to, to y'all here. Uh, Laura, would, would you mind playing through the, the new tune? And then I invite you to stand in body or spirit as we open together in song.
Sí. Psalm 51, for the leader, a psalm of David, when Nathan the prophet came to him after he had come to Bethsheba. Have mercy upon me, O God, as befits your faithfulness in keeping with your abundant compassion, blood of my transgression. May it please you to make Zion prosper, rebuild the walls of Jerusalem. Then you will want sacrifices offered in rations, burnt in wool offering, then, then both with offered in your altar. And now we go to Joel 2. Blow a horn in Zion, Sound an alarm on my holy mount, that all dwellers in earth tremble. For the day of God has come, it is close. A day of darkness and gloom, a day of densest cloud, spread like soot over the hills, a vast, enormous horde. Nothing like it has ever, ever happened, and it shall ever happen again through the years and ages. Yet even now, says God, turn back to me with all your hearts. And with fasting, weeping, and lamenting, rent, rent your hearts. Rather than your garments, and turn back to the eternal, your God. For God is gracious and compassionate, slow to anger, abundant in kindness, and renouncing punishment. Who knows but God may turn and relent and leave a blessing behind for, for grain offering and drinking offering to the eternal your God. Blow a horn and sign, so as a fast, proclaim an assembly, gather the people, bid the con congregation purify themselves. Bring together the old, gather the babes and the suckling at the breast. Let the bridegroom come out of his chamber Deprived from her canopy of couch between the portico and the altar. Let the priests of God's ministers weep and say, O oh, spare you people, eternal one. Let not your possession become a mockery to be taught by nations. Let not the people say, where is their God? This is the word of God. Good morning, friends. It is so good to be with you this morning and to be able to have this privilege of bringing the word of God today. When uh, Reverend Eisenhagen put out the call for folks to volunteer for a certain chapel service, 
I immediately wanted to grab this Shrove Tuesday service. I have always loved Ash Wednesday, and as my eyes have been open to traditions that I did not grow up in, I have become even more appreciative of the ways that the concepts of Ash Wednesday are open to other faith traditions. And so I'm glad to be able to share that with you this morning. Before I begin, I want to acknowledge my privilege around food. I have never known what it is like to go hungry. My dad made sure of that. My dad grew up in poverty, and though he never would say it out loud, he never said that he went hungry. But over and over again throughout my childhood, he said, I decided when I had children that you girls would never go hungry. And we never did. My grandmother planned meals like it was a religious tradition. His mother, my grandmother. It was always joked that as grandmother was preparing the biscuits for breakfast, that she would be thinking about what she was gonna make for lunch. And then when we would sit down at the lunch table, she would start talking to us about what we wanted to have for dinner that night. She was always thinking ahead, one meal ahead, maybe more. And as I have become an adult and looking back, I think I understand why. We always joked that this was one of her peculiarities, but... I think it was simply the outward presentation of her inward hypervigilance over where her next meal would come from. Teasing out this insight through the lenses of trauma and epigenetics that I have been exposed to in the last few years, I strongly suspect that I have inherited my grandmother's anxiety over food. And who knows how many generations back we can trace it. All of this to say that though I have never been hungry, I always worry about food. My office down the hall is exhibit A for this anxiety. With little need to store paper files anymore, I have a four drawer veritable pantry. So if you are ever running low on vegetable stock, You know where to come. (laughs) Office 229, I've got you covered. (laughs) I realize that this food obsession is irrational. I pass no fewer than four grocery stores between my house and the EMU campus. I can add to my lion's share plan anytime I need to. And when the calf is closed, there's innumerable options for an affordable lunch. I am not food insecure. I find it important to state this at the beginning because today I will be talking about fasting as it relates to the Christian season of Lent. This fasting is voluntary, while fasting due to food insecurity is involuntary. Therefore, this sermon may land harder on some than others. So please, friends, Take good care. As you well know, tomorrow is Ash Wednesday on the Christian calendar, the day that begins the 40-day season of Lent. 
Though it has evolved much over its nearly 2,000-year history, the observance of a 40-day period of penitential fasting before Easter can be traced to second-century church father Irenaeus, whose writings suggest that it may have even been observed by the apostles themselves. The Lenten observance was later codified by the Council of Nicaea in the early 4th century. And in the centuries that followed, church regulations of fasting during Lent were to be strictly followed, with only one afternoon meal a day from Ash Wednesday to Easter, with the exception, exception of Sundays, following what we today call a vegan diet. Even now, the practice of eating no animal products during Lent is followed by many expressions of Orthodox Christianity, including by many of our students on campus. Though regulations surrounding Lenten fasting loosened in the second millennium of Christianity, fasting of some sort remained a crucial part of Lent. Today we see that holdover in the Catholic Church's practice of eating no meat but fish on Fridays, and in the widely practiced concept of giving something up for Lent giving something up as a type of fasting. My proclivity toward irrational food anxiety meant that I was never keen on the spiritual discipline of fasting. Normally that wasn't an issue because in the United Methodist churches that I grew up in, they did not hold fasting as a core spiritual discipline. Prayer, yes. Bible reading, yes. Daily devotional, yes, absolutely. But fasting was not emphasized. I do remember that as a teenager in my youth group, I participated in something called the 30-hour famine, which was a program to try to educate youth about what it's like to be food insecure. But I was that bad kid in the youth group who, when the leaders weren't looking. I snuck my granola bar. <laughs> I didn't do well at my 30-hour famine, but I tried. When I became clergy, my supervisors in the UMC, my district superintendents and my bishop, would sometimes call for fast days. I never participated. I rationalized this by my theological thoughts. God doesn't want me to go hungry. God doesn't want anyone to go hungry. And I rationalized by my honest thoughts. It's stupid to go hungry. Who in the world would do that? Who can pray when you're hungry? What in the world good does that do for you? So you see that my ideas, my values around fasting were not high. But my Lenten discipline was something that I held dear. From the time I was a teenager, every year I would give something up for Lent. Usually it was chocolate, and then when I got into college, I realized that coffee was going to be a harder thing to give up, so I did that instead. And then in the early days of social media, when Facebook was the thing, that's what I would give up for Lent. I would give up something that would seem like a minor sacrifice, maybe an inconvenience. But I never thought about fasting. In recent years, instead of giving something up for Lent, I would take on a practice. And sometimes that was harder. 
Sometimes carving out that time for a daily scripture reading, meditation before I came to work was almost impossible while trying to get kids ready for school and feeding the umpteen pets that we have. When I was serving churches, Ash Wednesday was my favorite service of the entire Christian year. There was something about the earthiness the earthiness of the ashes that grounded me. And two, I felt, I thought it was the most real services of faith because it was the farthest from that pie in the sky version of Christianity that sometimes my grandparents had adhered to. And I could count on the lectionary being the same every year. All three years of the Revised Common Lectionary have the same scriptures for Ash Wednesday. And two of those, Luis read for us. Psalm 51 is the penitential psalm of David, attributed, as Luis read, to the time when David was most repentant about his cluster of wrongdoings and taking Bathsheba, the wife of Uriah, as for himself, and subsequently, having the husband killed off in the front lines of battle. This psalm has produced some of the most poignant and beautiful lines about God's forgiveness of sin. We read here about a contrite heart, about sinning against God and only God, which I have to say, I think is kind of a cop-out on David's part. David did not sin only against God. So, it has me wonder some about the psalm, but still, it gives us beautiful poetry about God's ever-present forgiveness of sins. It gives us lines about introspection, about asking God for a clean heart, asking God to purify us, a beautiful reflection for Ash Wednesday. It is a psalm that is great for the whole season of Lent, even, because it's when Christians focus on the upcoming sacrifice of Jesus as the ultimate testimony of forgiveness of sins. And then there is Joel, Joel chapter 2. The prophet Joel may well be referring to Psalm 51 when he writes lines about God being slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. When he writes about, rend your hearts and not your clothing. Focusing on that inward journey of introspection and forgiveness, asking God for forgiveness of sins. Naturally, when I became enamored with Judaism and started attending services on the regular, I noticed scriptural similarities all around. I notice that the lines of Psalm 51 are part of the central service for every Shabbat service, every holiday service, every time Jews gather in the synagogue. It is called the Amidah, the standing prayer. And it starts with, God, open up my lips that my mouth may declare your praise. Psalm 51. And then I noticed themes from Joel. I noticed these themes during the first lead-up 
to my first observance of Yom Kippur. I kept hearing about the word teshuva, return. It has become almost a motto that's given in the days leading up to Yom Kippur. That really is what Yom Kippur is about. The Day of Atonement is not just about atoning of your sins, but it is about returning to who God has created us to be, returning to the core of ourselves, which is one who is created to give praise to God. My first Yom Kippur, I had no idea what was going on. I was like a deer in the headlights. Never had been to a Yom Kippur service at all. That was in 2020, and I attended part of the services in person. There's a whole sequence, just like um, during Holy Week, but I attended part of them in person and part of them online. But I didn't participate in any fasting. It was a huge learning curve for me. My second Yom Kippur occurred just days after I had made the decision that yes, I did want to convert. And so I thought, well, if I'm going to convert to Judaism, I better do some kind of fasting on Yom Kippur. But my food anxiety. And so I rationalized, as one does. I was familiar with the Muslim practice of fasting for Ramadan, where you fast from sundown or sun up to sundown. And so I thought, well, it's my first Yom Kippur. I'm going to ease into fasting. If it's good enough for the Muslims, it's good enough for me. <laughs> so I ate a hefty breakfast before the sun came up and then didn't eat until the sun went down. Still, not a full 24-hour fast of Yom Kippur. As I was telling that story to some of my friends, one of them, tongue-in-cheek, said, well, you're just a bad Jew. And I have since realized that being called a bad Jew is just a term of endearment in the community. We all aspire to be bad Jews. <laughs> 2022. My third observance of Yom Kippur, I did enter into it with a desire to fully experience what fasting was like. I recall going to bed, wondering what it was going to be like the next day when I woke up without a big breakfast. My anxieties were flaring up. But as I woke up and prepared to go to the worship service, which lasts all day long, I began to get excited about what it was going to be like. I thought about the others who were doing this with me, who were fasting. And as we entered into that first service and we began to sing some of these penitential lines found in Psalm 51 and also in Joel, because those happen to be part of the lectionary in the Jewish calendar for Yom Kippur, as we started to sing those, I began to feel the presence of the community. We were there in the synagogue all day together. Some would 
leave the sanctuary and go take a nap as one does when you haven't eaten for hours. Some would simply sit there and not be able to sing. But wherever we were on that spectrum, we were all doing it together. So here's what I learned about fasting. Number one, I can survive fasting. I can. I'm here today. I can go 24 hours without food. It is possible. Number two, fasting is made easier and maybe, for me, only made possible when done in community. And number three, I learned that those mystics were right, that fasting can transport you to a different spiritual plane. I had never done it before. I wouldn't have been able to, told, to tell you. But having experienced what it's like to go 24 hours without food with the purpose of doing it as a spiritual discipline, I can tell you that on the other side of that, I was on a different spiritual plane. I still can't explain everything about what it was about. I think that might remain a mystery to me. But I do appreciate the practice of fasting as a spiritual discipline now. In my hobby now of comparative religious study, albeit from the subjective perspective and not the objective academic perspective, I have thought a lot about the parallels between Lent and the 40 days leading up to Yom Kippur. In the Jewish calendar, the month of Elul falls 30 days before Rosh Hashanah, which is the celebration of the Jewish New Year, between Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur are 10 days. The 40 days, 10 plus 30, before Yom Kippur are known to be a time of introspection, a time of searching the heart. It has become especially prominent in the last couple of centuries with the growth of the Musar movement, the Musar movement being one of always wanting to better yourself as a spiritual being in this world. And so those 40 days really seem to parallel the 40 days of Lent, of looking inside, trying to become a better person, trying to become more of who God has made us to be. I have learned that both of these seasons focus on that introspective evaluation of the heart. And I have learned that both seasons culminate in a broad declaration of the forgiveness of sins. I have also learned to appreciate what are some of the differences. The most being what it's like to practice fasting as a spiritual discipline. Sure, I've been invited to before, but hadn't done it. And now that I have, I can very much appreciate what it means to practice a spiritual discipline of deprivation within the context of community. If you can think back to Shalom Academy a couple of months ago, well, not even a couple of months ago, several weeks ago, if you attended the, uh, the session where Shannon Dykus, 
our Vice President and Dean of Student Affairs here. She shared with us about spiritual disciplines for the practice of peacemaking. And in that challenging sermon, Shannon gave us the questions to think about regarding spiritual disciplines. She showed us that spiritual disciplines in the Christian tradition are usually understood to be individual spiritual disciplines. And that even when we gather for worship on Sunday mornings, we may be doing spiritual disciplines in community, but we are doing those as individual members of a community. Shannon then posed to us some questions about what it would be like to re-envision spiritual disciplines as communal practices. That sermon was so challenging in a good way. I have heard so many of you and others around campus talk about how much it meant to be challenged in that way, to think about spiritual disciplines as communal practices, that I have even encouraged Shannon to eventually write a book about that subject. She has got me questioning, and as I've been questioning and thinking about this, I've been drawing the parallels to what it's been like to experience the spiritual discipline of fasting in community and how, for me, I can only fast as a member of a community who's all practicing it together. And so I pose the question to us today, what would it be like for us to reimagine spiritual disciplines of Lenten deprivation as a communal practice? What would it mean mean to give something up for Lent? Not as an individual giving something up like chocolate for 40 days, but giving something up as a member of a community who is all giving something up together. What would that mean? What would it mean to discern in community what God might be calling your particular local congregation, your particular expression of the body of Christ to be giving up in order to become more of the community that God has called you to be. I have no answers. I just have questions. And I have learned that questions in my new tradition of Judaism are more important than the answers. And so I leave you with the questions in your heart of thinking of spiritual disciplines as individual members of a community committed to growing as the body of Christ and living into our calling to be children of God. Thank you. Let's take a moment to reflect on 
what we've been offered in silence. And then as a community, I invite you to either open your, vo your voices together, hymnal to number 304, or to be attentive to the walls around you. And we will prepare for Ash Wednesday tomorrow with Sign Us With Ashes. I invite you to stand in body or spirit, however you are feeling more comfortable this morning, and let's sing together. standing and to join me in a prayer of confession. I will lead the plain print and we'll pray the bold print together. O most holy and beloved, our companion, our guide upon the way, our bright evening star, we repent the wrongs we have done. We have wounded your love. O God, heal us. We stumble in the darkness. Light of the world, transfigure us. We forget that we are your home. Spirit of God, dwell in us. Eternal Spirit, living God, in whom we live and move and have our being. All that we are, have been, and shall be is known to you, to the very secrets of our hearts and all that rises to trouble us. Living flame, burn into us, Cleansing wind blow through us, fountain of water well up within us, that we may love and praise in deed and in truth. Merciful God, we set aside these next 40 days not just as individual sinners, but as a community, beloved, 
yet wounded and walled, seeking your grace and strength to be one as you are one and to be whole as you are whole. Nurture us in your love and lead us by your light. Amen. The song that will send us back into whatever this Tuesday may hold for us, blessed be the tie that binds, either on page 831 of your Voices Together hymnal or on the walls around us. this 40-day journey ahead. 